Let's pray before we uh, get going on the word together, okay? Father, we're about to open your word and look at the great truths here. So we just pray that you would fix our hearts upon these things. And uh, if you need to speak to us, that you would do so with clarity today. In Christ's name, amen. Well, last week we were in Acts chapter 16, and that's where we've been. Uh, we're not going to advance at all. We're going to stop and land on a verse. Oh, children can go to children's church. I knew I'd forget something. One of these days. I thought I was getting in the habit. So, Acts 16, um, verse 31. Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you shall be saved, you and your household. That's where we stopped last time. And that's our whole text for today, basically. Actually, we're going to be spending a lot of time in John's Gospel. But um, we're working through Acts. And uh, Luke, the author, is unfolding the story of the expansion of the early church from Jerusalem to Rome. And we've been in Acts 16, which is Paul's second missionary journey. And that is a narrative. It's a story. And it's a, it's a narrative is a story with a purpose. I mean, he's going somewhere with this. So Luke is very careful, as I've mentioned before, to drop little nuggets of truth in, into his history so we can grasp what the history is really all about, what the most important things are to take away from it. And last week we looked at how God saved this simple jailer. We don't know his name. I called him Marcus the Jailer, but whatever we want to call him. This simple jailer that um, was in the city of Philippi, and we stopped with those words. Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. So statements like that are, are one of the theological purposes that Luke has in writing the book of Acts in the way that he did it. We've already seen Luke doing this before, just placing these, these key statements of great substance in his account. So in Acts chapter 15 at, at the Jerusalem Council where they were debating the whole issue of Gentile inclusion, whether Gentiles needed to follow Judaism to be saved or not, Peter stands up and he gives this incredible speech and um, this is his final words in the book of Acts. Peter disappears from the book after this. But he speaks on the great issue of the day and he says, we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. We are saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus. That statement is sort of the foundation for everything that's going to follow. We are saved by grace, period, right? It's a gift. You cannot earn it. You can't add anything to God's grace to be saved. We've already seen a theological purpose also in Acts chapter 16. So the Jerusalem Council 15, then in Acts 16, the, the missionary journey. And we came a couple weeks ago upon Lydia and uh, the first convert in Europe in Philippi there. In Acts chapter 16 verse 14 Luke says Lydia was listening and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. So that is grace in action. God is applying his grace to a person there in that story. Grace opens the heart to believe. That's a gift of God. So we talked about the doctrine of regeneration there, the new birth, how we come to believe that God awakens us to the truth of the gospel and then we come to it. So now in Acts chapter 16 verse 31, just a little bit past the Lydia story, Luke's theological purpose is to define or describe how a man or a woman is saved in response to the message the apostles were giving. So believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. That's the message. So it is believe plus nothing. The Bible plainly teaches that we are justified 
by faith alone. That is super clear. In fact, the Apostle Paul, the man that said these words, believe in the Lord Jesus and you shall be saved. He wrote the whole long letter about salvation. It's right there in your Bible. It's called the book of Romans. And the whole thing is about that. Um, it, in that letter, he explains in great deal the human problem. We are sinners. And he tells us how a sinner can be made righteous before God. That's the most important thing. Because if I go before God as a sinner, I stand before him condemned. But if I can be righteous when I stand before him, that's everything. And that's what Jesus accomplished, of course. So that's the great story there. So, Paul says in Romans uh, 3.28, we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. You could say that's kind of the key line in that whole long letter there. We, are main we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. <clears throat> in other words, your good deeds can't add anything to your salvation. What could they add? I mean, think about it. What could your good deeds add to what Christ has done for you? Our sins make us sinners deserving divine wrath and only the atonement of Jesus Christ, only the sacrifice of Christ can make us worthy in God's eyes. That's how we approach God without fear. He, he literally bore our sins on the cross and paid our debt. So what could our feeble works actually add to what Jesus has done? I mean, it's like, it's, it's silly actually to even think that it could, but that's human nature to think I've got to do something, I've got to do something. So if salvation is based on faith, believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, then what's the most important thing to understand about that sentence? What does it mean to believe? That's the most important thing. Because faith, or the word faith, or the way we use believe in normal language is pretty different. It covers a lot of diverse sort of ideas there. So that's the most important question. How is the word believe used in Paul's statement to the Philippian jailer? What does he mean? And what does the Bible always mean by faith and belief when you're putting it in Christ? What does it mean when you do that? So it's a really important question. You don't want to get it wrong. So that's why we're stopping here on this particular sentence. So the word for faith or belief in the Greek New Testament is, is, it works the same way it does in English. It means a lot of different things. So what we're going to do today is sort out the different ways it's used in certain ways and talk about the way it needs to be for you to be right with God, to, to have faith in Christ. So faith can have different shades of meaning in the Bible and in English, just the way we use it. Faith, faith can mean simply, I believe something is true. I believe it's real. I believe some story is true or something is real. Yes, Sam, I do believe that you were a Navy SEAL. You don't have to keep telling me that. That's believing something. It's a fact, right? It doesn't mean anything about Sam, it, it, uh, but it just means I believe that he said. I believe you can, I, I believe you can take your Tahoe and jump that canyon. I, I believe you can do that. Faith can mean I think something is true. Faith can also be sort of a wish or a hope. Actually, the Tahoe thing is probably more of a wish or a hope, right? But I have faith that the Cubs will win the pennant, even losing key players this year. So that, that's faith, right? That's, I believe that can happen. I believe Joe will pay me back. He said he would. <laughs> I believe that. I believe that. That's one kind of thing. Faith can also be trust or confidence in a person, right? I believe in you. Or I will follow him to my death. That kind of faith. I trust you to have my best interests at heart. That's a more personal connection kind of faith idea. Well, the Greek word has a, a, a similar variety of meanings, and that's why the New Testament distinguishes kinds of faith. James, in the little book of James in the back of the Bible, James 2.14, he, 
he, uh, he asked this question, what use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? He says, can that faith save him? So what's he doing? He's talking about a particular kind of faith. It's the kind of a faith of a person that says, I believe in Jesus and has zero interest in obeying Jesus, following Jesus, or doing anything Jesus wants him to do. But they say, I, I do believe. I believe in Jesus. I, in fact, when I was six years old, I accepted Jesus and I got baptized and, and that's it. I, I know. I'm, I'm good. Obey him? No. Come on, don't be legalistic and all messed up like that. So he's talking about a certain kind of faith there. That faith. That faith. That faith has no interest in obeying Jesus. So we probably all know somebody who says they have faith in, and in their mind they think they do, but there is no sense in which they're devoted to God or love God or want to serve God in any way, shape, or form. That's just not who they are. They don't even think about that. So what kind of faith is that? It's something other than saving faith, according to James. So the Gospel of John, let's kind of head in that direction because I'm going to spend the rest of our time there. That is the Gospel of faith. It talks about faith all the time. And you see different kinds of faith there as well. The most famous verse probably in the world, even football players put it in their black thing and under their eyes. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but will have eternal life, right? So believe, there's the word believe. Believe in him, in a person. That's the sole requirement according to that verse to have eternal life. But you have to know, you have to know what it means to believe in him there. It can't be the same as James, that faith thing, because that faith is not saving. So what is it? Well, one of the most interesting portions in John is in chapter 2. Let's look there. Jesus uh, is in Jerusalem for the Passover, and here's what John says. Oops, let me get back to there. Chapter 2, near the end of the chapter, verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name. Okay, great, right? observing the signs which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them because he knew all men. Now it says, many believed in his name, and it's exactly the same word that's used about Jesus saying he would not entrust himself to them. It's the same word in the Greek text. So it says, many believed in his name. Believe and entrust are the same words. They believed something about Jesus, right? Because of his miracles. But he didn't believe in their belief. The kind of faith they had wasn't something he trusted or could put his trust in. He didn't entrust himself to that kind of faith. And that's a James kind of faith. So entrust is a, is a deeper version of simply believing something in your head. And as you follow along in John's gospel, you'll see why Jesus did not entrust himself to them, especially in John chapter 6. So I want to go to John chapter 6 and talk about that for the rest of our time today. Because um, we talked about John 6 a little bit when we talked about the Lord opening Lydia's heart to believe, because John explains that saving faith is based on the Father 
the Father in heaven drawing people to Jesus. It's an act of grace, another work of grace. So John chapter 6 is very important to seeing the distinctions in the word faith. So what are we doing? We're hunting in the Bible to understand what saving faith is. That's what we're doing right now. So John 6 begins with this miracle of the loaves and the fishes, very famous story. Jesus feeds his great multitude who followed him because of his miracles. And it's an amazing miracle. And the reaction of the people there is in verse 14 of John chapter 6. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. So now by a dictionary definition, that's a belief, right? They've got some conviction there. They've come to a conclusion that Jesus, at the very least, is the prophet promised by Moses. And that is faith. It's faith of some sort about Jesus, right? Jesus knows where that faith is going that they have. So um, verse 15, so Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. All right, so they want to make him king. Well, he is the king, right? So isn't that a good thing? Hmm, not sure it's a good thing. They want him. They believe, but folks, they don't understand who he is or why he came or what he's all about. They're putting their faith in an idea that they've got in their own head. So Jesus goes home to Capernaum. He actually walks on water part of the way. That's another story we won't go today, but he goes home and the crowd ends up following him home. They take some boats and sail across the lake and they they go see him. So in verse 25, they ask him, a a little bit perplexed, they say, Rabbi, when did you get here? Because... They're trying to figure out, I mean, they don't know about walking on the water, so they don't know how he did that. But he ignores their question. And what he does in verse 26, he goes straight to the heart of this matter we're talking about. Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, the Father, God, has set his seal. Okay. It's it's all out in the open now, right? He's, He's promising them eternal life. And now they ask the big question. Verse 28. What shall we do that we may work the works of God? That's the big mistake. It's the wrong question. What shall we do? What deeds do we need to perform? What work will please God enough to bring us eternal life? And Jesus is as clear as he can be. Verse 29, this is the work of God. If you want to talk about a work, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. That's the work. Believe in him. That's the only thing you need to do is believe in Jesus. Believe in the one that God sent. But they don't get that. They don't get it at all. He's already reading their hearts. He knows exactly where they're coming from. He already knows why they want to make him king. And now they openly reveal themselves about it in verse 30. They said to him, Well, what then do you do for a sign? So that we may see and believe. What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. You know, you made bread for us a few uh, days ago, but um, 
you know, Moses fed them every day for years and years. He, there was bread there. So let's see a bigger thing, right? And, I, you know, I read that and I'm thinking, wait a minute. They already concluded this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. They believed that. They were talking that way. Didn't they already want to make him king? They already wanted to do that. Didn't they already follow him because of the signs? That's what it says in verse 2. Because of the signs that he performed. So why are they asking for signs? Because they have a thing they want him to be and they are pushing him to promise to be that. They, they want a gravy train guy. What do we have to do to stay on the gravy train so that you can provide for us bread forever? What are you going to do for me? There's not the slightest humility there. There's not the slightest repentance there or recognition of who Christ is or what it's all about or what their need is. So I can assure you that saving faith is not trusting in Jesus to be Santa Claus. That's not what it is. Beggars don't bargain. And they just have no awareness of their need for a savior. So Jesus continues to explain that it's not about bread made from grain. That's not what it's about. Verse 32. Truly, truly I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven. It is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. That sounds great. So verse 34, they say, Lord, always give us this bread. And now the truth. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger and he who believes in me will never thirst. That's a beautiful statement. Pay close attention to Jesus' words right there in verse 35. And notice this is a very Hebrew thing he does. It's a, he makes a parallel, makes a parallel structure just like all the poetry in the Old Testament. He who comes to me, parallel, he who believes in me. So he's actually defining this kind of faith that leads to eternal life. It's coming to him. It's more than just believing in your head something about him. It's actually coming to him. So we're learning more here about what it means to believe in Jesus' name. It means coming to him. So Jesus is the object of our faith and we have to come to him. So we're not, we're not adding him to our lives. Wouldn't it be nice to have Jesus just a part of my life? No, we're coming to him. We're bringing ourselves to him because he's the center of everything. You might remember Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28 where Jesus said, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Do you remember that? We come to him for rest. And he doesn't mean taking a nap. He means salvation. Rest from all your labors. Rest from all your trying to appease God. He's just a loving, tender Savior. So think about that invitation to come. It's more than mere mental acknowledgement. Oh, I believe. I believe. I, I think you are the Messiah. I, I do. Well, the believing that leads to eternal life is coming to him. It involves the will. Saving faith is, is choosing to engage with this person, Jesus, God's son. So it's much, it's much more like the idea of entrusting my, himself. Like when Je said Jesus did not entrust himself to them. 
because because of the nature of their faith, but the, the faith that he wants from us is to entrust ourselves to him. So that's the shade of meaning there you want to definitely get. But these people in John 6, they're not entrusting themselves to him at all. Verse 36, I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. So earlier it said they did believe, but they didn't believe savingly. They didn't, they didn't have that kind of faith. They had the other kind of faith. So he's now he's openly saying, you don't believe me. You don't believe in me. They don't have the faith that leads to life. So what more could an earnest seeker for truth want from Jesus than what they'd already seen? I mean, he's done, already done the miracles. He's told them exactly what they need to do. But their hearts are just wrong. That's kind of like John chapter 3, you know, the Nicodemus story when Nicodemus came to Jesus at night. He had a kind of faith, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God. As a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So there's a kind of faith there, some kind of faith, something. But Jesus said, truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So he's telling Nicodemus, you need to have this new birth. Nicodemus knows Jesus is special. He knows he's God sent. He's open to learning from him, apparently. Rabbi calls him teacher. And Jesus says, you need to be born again. So saving faith comes as God acts on our heart and grants us this new birth, this new awareness. So let's go back to John 6 there and look at verse 36. Right after he said, um, but I said to you that you have seen me, yet you do not believe. Then verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing but will raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Wow. There again, coming and believing are synonymous in Jesus' mind. You've got to come to him. But all that's required is to have that kind of faith. So belief is more than just affirmation. It's, it's more than thinking that Jesus is special. We, we come to him. Verse 44 is really fascinating. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So it's really interesting that Jesus says this to a crowd of people who want him but want him as less than he really is. And they reject what he has to say about himself. I, I, I've always wanted to know the tone of voice Jesus had there in verse 44 and 45. I don't know what it was, but I'd like to have heard that. The Father has to draw, though. In fact, that Greek word means really drag. It's a strong, the Father has to drag you in. It's a, it's a fair translation of that word. Those who come must have heard from God and learned from God. In other words, that's, that's that new birth process going on. So human beings, they're just, we're too lost to find God on our own. We're too depraved. He, he finds us and draws us and opens our hearts and teaches us. Verse 46, not that anyone has seen the Father, 
except the one who is from God, he has seen the Father, talking about himself. Truly I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. He says it again. I am the bread of life. You've got you've to eat me. And then he starts talking about them eating him and drinking his blood. And they wig out. Right? They, they didn't want him as the bread of life. They wanted bread. They wanted him to be a bread maker. They didn't want him to be the loaf. So let's kind of clarify all this now. Coming to Jesus is, is not a work. That is believing. That's what believing is. Saving faith. It's a matter of the heart alone. Coming to him is an internal reality that will be life changing. It's not passive. We, we have to choose Jesus and we have to choose the Jesus that really exists. Not one we make up in our head. So coming to Jesus means actively leaving who and what we were and bringing ourselves to him and giving ourselves to him. It, it's not passive in any way. Now we, we become his. You see that's what it is. So what should Jesus be to us? Well what is he to you? I mean you need to answer that question before you leave today I hope. Or at least weigh it carefully. What is he to you? The Philippian jailer was told believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's sometimes suggested by certain people in the church world that you can, you can have Jesus as your savior but it's optional if you want him to be your Lord. That's not the gospel they preached in the New Testament. That's not even saving faith. That's give us bread faith. So no, we don't cut Jesus up in pieces and take him a bit at a time and just say, oh, I don't want that. He's, he's not a buffet. He's not a buffet bread. We come to him as he is, Lord and Savior, King and Priest, Creator and Redeemer. We are looking for that particular kind of faith Paul has in mind when he says believe on the Lord Jesus. That's what we're thinking about right now. So we've come to the correct object of faith. Jesus as he's presented in the Bible in all of his glory. Lord, creator, savior, redeemer, judge of the world who humiliated himself and gave himself over to all kinds of suffering so that he could redeem us from our sins. And we have to understand that, like James said, there is a dead, unproductive kind of faith, a mere intellectual belief that never captures the heart. And that is not saving. It's, it's a fruitless faith. It's not a saving faith. You know, theologians, they love Latin. So um, theologians said there's really kind of three elements to saving faith. And I think they're right about this. I mean, I mean if you just kind of break it up into its parts, there's different kinds of faith. And they're saying it's got to be all three of these kinds and they use Latin words notitia and ascensus and fiducia. So um, what do those mean? Well notitia means just facts. So believing the facts. I believe that Jesus Christ was sent from God. He died on the cross for my sins. He died on the cross for sins I should say and he rose from the dead. I believe those are facts. And then ascensus, the second element of faith, saving faith, is viewing those facts as good for me. In other words, he died for sins. I'm a sinner. That could really help me out, his dying for me. In fact, I need a savior. He's a savior. In fact, he's the creator of all things and he's the king of the universe. So he deserves 
my love and my devotion. So now I'm kind of assenting to these truths. I'm saying, yes, these are all things are true and that and it has effect on me. It's calling me to do something. It's not just I think it's true. It's calling on me to do something. And then fiducia is, is personal trust. Now I, I'm going to trust him with me. I'm going to embrace him and give myself to him. I'm going to follow him. He's going to be my Lord and King as well as the only hope for my salvation. So look, listen, this is the one thing you got to pay attention to. So wake up. So <laughs> there's a huge difference, an eternal difference between I believe Jesus is God and King and Savior and I believe Jesus is my God and my King and my Savior. You see the difference? I can believe it's true and still not do anything about it. But when I come to him, he's my king, he's my savior, he's my God. It's altogether different to say he's my king than it is to say he's the king. If you put it in earthly terms, you know how really partisan people say when the other guy wins an election? He's not my president. <laughs> Remember how people say that? You probably say that too sometimes. But that's what people do with God. He's not my God. He is God, but he's not my God. You know, that's sinful man right there. The, the, the rejecting the true God. He's not my God. But saving faith says, I have rebelled against my good king, the creator of all things. He, and he has offered me a full pardon. I was so wrong about him. I was so wrong to ignore him. I come for pardon now because I was so wrong. He is my God and I, I come joyfully to him and from now on I'm his man. See the difference there? That's what saving faith is like. So be sure you've truly come to Christ and are not playing around with faith. Are you his? Have you taken him to be your God, your king, your savior? That's, that's the big question. Well, I didn't know how to finish this message, so I decided to just read the rest of John chapter 6 and let God's word have its perfect result. So I'm just going to end with that. Starting at verse 49. Jesus is still speaking. <clears throat> your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats from this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews began to argue with one another saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also will live because of the Father. This is the bread that came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Therefore many of his disciples when they heard this said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to him, does this cause you to stumble? 
What then if you should see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he was saying, for this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So Jesus said to the twelve, you do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, did I, did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Let's pray. Lord God, you have sent us the very bread of life, Jesus Christ. If there are any among us without the faith that saves, graciously draw them and open their hearts. We who know you, Father, we ask that you remind us again of the complete sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice to pay for our sins, to make our reconciliation with you real. As we gather before your table now, we humbly pray that the Spirit would give us confidence in our Savior, whose love for his own knows no bounds. We pray in his name. Amen.